So, of course, we're going to talk today about the, the greatest event in the history of the world, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. That's what we are here to celebrate today. And um, I love, as, as Blake was reading there, just the account from John's gospel. Of course, that account of the resurrection of Jesus is found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we chose to read John's account. But I love just hearing the story again. I love just the, the humanness of it. It just, you know, it just smacks of reality. Even though there's mysterious supernatural components to it, it's, it's just a straightforward narrative of the events that happened on that first, uh, what we now call Easter morning. Now, what I want to do today, though, is I want to do something a little bit different. And so we read that just to kind of get that as our background. But we're going to be looking at some verses in John chapter 10. Now, in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus, this is that uh, section of Scripture where Jesus famously says that he is the good shepherd. And so, you know, as as Easter time comes around each year, for each and every preacher that I know, there's always um, a little bit of a challenge. I mean, in one, uh, on, on the one hand, it's really simple. You know, somebody asked me this morning, what are you going to preach on today? Well, <laughs> you know, it's pretty, pretty easy to conclude. We're going to preach on the resurrection. But the, the other part of it that's a little bit challenging is you want to bring something fresh and you want to maybe, you know, have a little bit of a different perspective. So you've got to think and pray. So we had been talking about this and thinking about it and praying about, you know, what would be our theme? Because we'd like to do a theme each Easter. Obviously, the resurrection is the main theme, but we want to do a theme around it. So, so anyway, we landed on um, the Good Shepherd. And... One of the things that I think is sometimes missed is that in this passage where Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd, he talks very specifically about both his death and his resurrection. So I'm going to read to you from John chapter 10, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 18. And so it says this, Jesus speaking, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me. I know the father and I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down 
and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So here we see, again, it's, it's not really hidden, but sometimes we miss it. Jesus, he's talking about laying down his life. We understand he's talking there about the cross, but then he says, I'm also gonna take it up again. And of course, there he's talking about the resurrection. So what I want us to do today is I want us to look at the death and resurrection of Christ through this lens of the good shepherd. Now, when the Bible uses this imagery of sheep and shepherd to describe the relationship between God and his people, it's teaching us something. So obviously we're not sheep in the literal sense, and God is not a shepherd in that sense, but but in another sense he is. So (coughs) what this imagery is teaching us is that we, human beings, were not created to live a life of independence or self-sufficiency. But we, like sheep who cannot survive, let alone flourish without a shepherd, we need someone to watch over and to take care of us. That's what this whole imagery is about. When we read about the Lord is my shepherd, and when we read in, um, (coughs) excuse me, other Old Testament passages about um, us being uh, his sheep, (coughs) the idea that is being communicated is that we need to be taken care of. We cannot uh, flourish whatsoever. We we could maybe even not survive without the care of the shepherd. So Jesus here, he refers to himself, but notice it's not just as a shepherd, but as the good shepherd. And the difference between a shepherd and a good shepherd is simply concern and care for the sheep. So it's possible like we, you know, Jesus mentioned here, the hired hand. So the hired hand is a person who takes care of the sheep, ostensibly, but in reality doesn't really take care of the sheep because they really don't care about the sheep. It's just their job. But Jesus is saying as the good shepherd, no, he's not like that. He is committed to the well-being of the sheep. He is so committed to the health and the welfare of the sheep that he would even and did lay down his life for the sheep. And that is exactly what he did for us because like sheep, we all went astray. And it was through the death of Jesus that he made a way for us to come back to God. So this is what I want to do uh, in our time together today. I want to look at how Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, the one that God brought back from the dead, I want to look at how in his life, death, and resurrection, he cares for, protects, and leads us through this life out of death and on into eternal life. So those are the things that we want to focus on here for the next few minutes. So um, the good shepherd cares for the sheep. He cares about us. In those times when Jesus said this, now remember, 
the context is Jewish. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's talking to the people of Israel. When Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, the first thing that would flash in the minds of all of these people would be what we know as the 23rd Psalm. The 23rd Psalm starts with these words, the Lord is my shepherd. And because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, which means I will not lack anything. So everybody, when Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, that's the first thing they would have thought about. They would have thought about that beautiful picture that was penned, uh, painted, if you will, by David all those centuries earlier when he talked about the Lord as his shepherd. And as a result of that, I lack nothing. And then it goes on to speak in picturesque uh, shepherd and sheep language. Uh, He makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside the quiet waters. Now, if we don't really know anything about sheep, this will be lost on us a little bit. Without going into any detail about the sheep, though, let me just say this. These are metaphors for physical and emotional provision of well-being. That, that's the picture. So when, when he says, the Lord is my shepherd, he, uh, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He's saying that he takes care of us. He takes care of our physical needs. He takes care of our emotional needs. And for those who know him as the shepherd, we would say to that how true it is. It is true. In this season that we have been living through, this season of pandemic the season of uncertainty, stress, fear, depression, suffering. I mean, these are all things that we've experienced to some level or another, and and some people have experienced them much more severely than others have. But yet, regardless of that, there are many who would say, the Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing. God has proven himself a faithful shepherd. He's proven himself to really care for us. He's watched over us during this time. I've talked to so many people who, going into the pandemic, they just literally could not imagine how they were going to survive, maybe because they lost their job at the very beginning of the pandemic. Or maybe because they were hit with the the sickness itself or whatever the case. But many people who just could not see how they were possibly going to make it through would say today, not only did I make it through, not only am I making it through, but you know, we're actually doing really well. Because the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is taking care of us through this. You know, there's a beautiful prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, and it's a prophecy about Jesus when he comes. And it speaks about this very issue of him shepherding. And it says this it says, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. So, you know, the shepherd was responsible to, to make sure the sheep get fed by leading them to the proper places to graze and then by moving them from place to place 
as uh, you know, the food supply would deplete, they would then move them along to the next place. Well, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. And then it says, he will gather the lambs in his arms, and I love this part, and carry them close to his heart and gently lead them. And that is the beautiful reality of the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. So we lack nothing. He provides for our needs. He uh, takes care of us physically, mentally, emotionally. But then he protects us as well. The good shepherd protects the sheep. Uh, he guards them even with his life if necessary. There's a, a really fantastic illustration of this in the life of David. David was the, he was the, the great king of Israel. He was the second king of Israel. He was, but he became the great king. He kind of became the, uh, the prototype for what a king should be. And David, before he was a king, he was a shepherd. And so he wrote that 23rd Psalm that we were talking about a second ago. So, you know, he's writing that from his experience. But he tells a story to King Saul um, when he, he's volunteering himself to go out and fight this giant named Goliath. And everybody is absolutely frightened to death at the presence of Goliath. There's not a single soldier in the Israeli army that is even going to think about going to battle against Goliath. Not even the king. He, he wasn't going to even think about doing that. But David comes forth and he volunteers. He says, I'll go fight this giant. And the king, Saul, at the time, he says, oh, you can't do that. You're just a kid. It's basically what he said to him. And then David tells him this story. He talks about when he was guarding his father's sheep, and he said this. He said, when a lion or bear, you like that part of the story? <laughs> when a lion or bear, it gets more exciting, listen, carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has both Kill, has killed both <coughs> lion and bear. Now, that's a pretty bold kid right there. Um, but here's the point. What David did is he risked his life for the sheep. He put himself in harm's way. He, uh, you know, in, in a sense, he kind of threw himself into the mouth of the lion to protect the sheep. That is what Jesus was talking about when he said that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. You see, what Jesus did in his death is he stood up against and he defeated our greatest foe. Our greatest foe is death. Well, this is the thing. I think uh, every Easter time, I always think about this, that um, the, the great enemy of mankind is death. For all people, everywhere, at all times, there, there's nobody that, that adjusts to death. 
It's, it's that looming, inevitable thing that, that causes us to live in fear. And Jesus, as I said, he threw himself into death in order to deliver us from death. And the Bible tells us in the New Testament book of Hebrews that he, through death, destroyed the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. So that's what happened. When Jesus laid down his life, he not only risked his life, he literally gave his life. He took the proverbial bullet for all of us died in the process, but in dying, this is how he defeated death. Jesus had said on numerous occasions that this is what he had come to do, that he had come to defeat death. But he implied that in order to defeat it, he was going to have to experience it himself. And so he said to his disciples, he said uh, on one occasion, they were, they were heading to Jerusalem. Now, remember, in the minds of these followers of Jesus, they believe that he's the Messiah. Now, the Messiah is the great conquering king of Israel who's going to come and deliver them from Roman oppression and set up God's kingdom over Israel. That's who the Messiah is in their mind. So as they are heading to Jerusalem, everybody's thinking, this is the moment. This is the moment that Jesus is going to restore the kingdom to Israel, and we're going to be set free, and Everything's going to change from this point forward. That's what they're thinking. And as they're heading up to Jerusalem, Jesus says to them, he says, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, he says, and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. And they're going to take him, and they're going to mock him, and they're going to beat him, and they're going to spit on him, and they're going to kill him but the third day he will rise again. Wow. Now, the Bible tells us they did not have any idea what he was talking about. They were thinking, like, what, what is this thing like dying? What is he, the Messiah doesn't die. That's not, that wasn't in their uh, understanding of the Messiah. So they were talking to one, uh, one another saying, what, what does he mean by dying and rising again? See, they didn't understand that in order to conquer death, he was going to have to experience it himself. And that's exactly what he did. There was another occasion that he said that to his, his followers, but he also said similar things to his enemies. Jesus had enemies. And there was a temple in Jerusalem that was the temple that was built by uh, Solomon, the son of David, and then it was rebuilt and restored. But anyway, that was, that was the place of worship, right? It was the place where the God of Israel was worshiped. But by the time Jesus came into the world, the whole religious system had become very corrupted, and the high priest, who was to be the one to lead the religious life of the nation, uh, he had uh, set up 
a, um, a whole money operation in the temple. And it was known historically as the Bazaars of Annas. And so this was a family business where people would come to Jerusalem, they would come to worship, and this, this man, this priest and his family, they would basically exploit the people financially. They would take total advantage of them. And so they had taken the house of prayer that God intended the temple to be, and they turned it into a den of thieves. And there was this one moment where Jesus, he sees this and he's like, okay, I'm done with this. So we read that he makes uh, a whip of cords and he goes through this area of the temple and he turns over the tables of the money changers and he sets all the animals that are there for sacrifice free and he drives them all out of the temple. And the priest, now these are like the people who have total authority and power over the nation. But they can't somehow stop him from doing this. But afterward, they come to him and they're threatening him and they say this to him. They say, by what authority do you do this? And Jesus said this. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. Now, his, his words were a little bit veiled in, in his meaning anyway. Because they're asking, why did you cleanse this temple? And he says, destroy this temple. But he's not talking about the, the building that they were thinking of. He's talking about his own body. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. This is, I will prove to you what my authority is by rising from the dead. That's what Jesus was saying. Now, that brings us to our third point, the good shepherd leading his sheep. Now, just a couple of practical things. The good shepherd, he, according to that Psalm 23 that we look, uh, mentioned, that he leads us in the paths of righteousness. So he leads our lives. This is part of what he does for us as the good shepherd. He leads our lives in the right paths. You know, there are many paths in the world, aren't there? But there's, there's one path that's right. The other paths are going to lead us into trouble. They're going to lead us into problems. But if we are following the good shepherd, he's going to lead us in the right path. Have you ever been maybe like on a hike and you're walking on a path, and then suddenly you come to a place where it's, it's like there's maybe like three paths, and you're looking going, okay, wait, which one is the one I'm on? How do I stay on the path that I'm on? Because this is going to get me to the waterfall that I want to go to or whatever. And so you think, oh, I think this is the path here. So you go off on this path, and about 15 minutes later, you come to a dead end. And you're like, wait, this is not the waterfall. This is a dead end. Oh, this was the wrong path. You've got to go back, retrace your steps, start over again. I've done this. That's why I can explain it so well. <laughs> you know, that's uh, in life. There are many paths. How do we know the right path? Well, he leads us in the right path. And then it says he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death even. 
He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. And so this is where this, this whole point about Jesus taking up his life again, this is where it becomes real important for us to understand. You see, just as the good shepherd cares for us and protects us and protects us from the ultimate enemy, death, so the good shepherd leads us and he leads us not just in paths of righteousness presently in our life, but he leads us through death itself and out the other side. You see, the resurrection is about Jesus conquering death for everyone. In the book of Hebrews, which I mentioned a moment ago, there's a passage that speaks of Jesus and it calls him the captain of our salvation. The captain of our salvation. Now, the captain is an okay translation, but it doesn't really get at exactly what the meaning of the Greek word is. The Greek word is archegos, and the word means one who takes the lead. So a captain, in one sense, of course, would lead the troops. So, okay. But it, it means uh, a predecessor or a forerunner, or it means a pioneer. Now, you know what a pioneer is? A pioneer is someone who goes before others and paves the way. Yes, that's what a pioneer does. <laughs> a pioneer paves the way. And Jesus went through death to pioneer the way for us. He blazed the trail, so to speak. That's what Jesus did. So he laid down his life and he also took it up again. And he says to you and me and any who will believe and follow, he says this. And this, this is, I love this. Just a simple statement of Jesus. He says, because I live, you shall live also. Now the context of that statement is this. This is before Jesus dies and just the night before, just hours before he's betrayed and tried and eventually sent off to carry his cross to Calvary and die. He's speaking to his disciples and he's telling them that he's going to leave. And he says, and the world will rejoice, but you will weep and lament. But then he says this, he says, but your sorrow will be turned to joy and no one will ever take that joy from you and because I live, you will live also. Wow. Jesus is telling them that he is going to go ahead of everyone. He is going to pave the way through death. He is going to defeat death. He's going to die, but he's not going to stay dead. He is going to conquer death by rising again from the dead. You know, think about this. There's no one in history who's risen from the dead. No one but Jesus. When, when the apostle Paul was in the city of Athens and he was speaking to the philosophers at a place called Mars Hill, he was telling them, 
Well, he was talking to them about, they, it, in Athens, they were notorious for their idolatry. So they had, they had idols to every imaginable kind of a god. And they had an idol to the unknown god. Just in case we missed one, we're going to set up this statue, and this is to the unknown God. So Paul, as he's passing through, he sees that. So as he's standing there talking to these philosophers, he says, you know, I notice that you have this image to the unknown God. The God that you don't know, I'm going to tell you about him. And he goes on and he says, now he's the God who made everything. He made the heavens, he made the earth, he made all the creatures, he made us. You know, he goes on to explain how God's a creator. And then he talked about how God came into the world through Jesus. He sent Jesus into the world. And through what Jesus did, God is now calling all people everywhere from all nations. He's calling everybody to turn to himself. And then he said this, and he said, and, and because he's appointed a day on which he's going to judge the world in righteousness, and he's shown us the man who is to be the judge by raising him from the dead. Paul says there's one person that stands out in all of history by rising from the dead. That's the person God has appointed to judge and to rule the world. So that's what's happening. And that brings us to a few simple questions. Number one, do we believe this? Do we believe this? Because the way God has set things up is that if we believe this, and, and understand that, that believing doesn't mean that we just give intellectual assent to it, that we just say, oh yeah, I, you know, yeah, I, I guess that happened. No, believe it means, yes, I believe it with all my life. I believe that this is true. <clears throat> and when we believe in that way, then all of the implications of those events become personal to us. So do you believe that? But let me ask this question. Would you like to believe it? You know, some might say, well, I don't know if I believe it. I, I, I kinda, I, I'd like to believe it, but I mean, can I believe it? You know, if you would like to believe it, God will help you to believe it. And listen, I'm not taking the time today to go into all the many different evidences and proofs and things like that that support the resurrection. I mean, seriously, there are volumes written on this. There are still people, obviously, who think that, oh, this is a myth and this never happened and it couldn't, that sort of stuff. Um, just know this, that there is as much, if not more, historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than there is for any other event in all of the history of the world. So there's no reputable historian on the planet who questions whether Jesus of Nazareth really lived, and most of them don't even question whether he rose from the dead. They don't necessarily know what it means, but they say the historical evidence is there. So if you want to believe, but maybe you're, maybe you're not sure if it's valid, ask God to show you, and he will. 
And if it's evidence you need, there's tons of it out there. But here's another question. Would you like to have life? And not just existence. Remember we talked about the the difference between survival and flourishing. Well, Jesus came so we could flourish. That's what he came to for. You know, we we can exist. In one sense, we can exist without the Lord. Most people do it. But that's pretty much what it is. You're just existing. And the truth is you're not really existing without the Lord because you're breathing his air and you're eating the food that he has supplied and your body is doing what it does, assimilating and processing and everything else because he created it to do that. So in one sense, we really can't live without him. But, you know, we think we can, so we go along thinking that we're in control of things. But the truth of the matter is we're not. But, the, but again, the question isn't so much of existence or survival, but the question is flourishing. Do you want to flourish? Because Jesus, in the very same passage that we're looking at here in John 10, he said this. He said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it in its fullest. See, Jesus came to give us the fullness of life. Like a life that you can't get anywhere else. A life that you can't buy a life that you can't put yourself in. You know, many people, this is an interesting fact. You know, many people, their lives outwardly look really together. And they seem to be very happy. And they, in one sense, seem to be flourishing. But you know, when you start to scratch under the surface and people start to be honest, they will just tell you, well, no, it's not what it appears to be. Because the truth is you can't flourish apart from the good shepherd. Because, you see, we are sheep. And sheep cannot flourish on their own. They can't do it. It's impossible. You're never going to find a flourishing flock of sheep that just said, you know what, we didn't need the shepherd. He didn't know what he was doing. We just decided we're going to figure it out ourselves. Any flock of sheep that does that is going to end up over the cliff. You know, in 2006, in eastern Turkey, there was a flock of sheep that walked off a cliff. 400 sheep walked off a cliff following one of them that thought it was probably a good idea to go in this direction. 400 of them. They all plunged to their death. You know, again, they needed a shepherd. They needed someone to protect them from that. They needed someone to keep them from going in that direction. This this life to its fullest This life is in Jesus and it begins the moment we embrace him and it goes on eternally. It goes on eternally. And I just want to say this, you know, I I have wondered myself, of course, here we are in church today, thank God. But you know, 
the church has been open for a few months now. Uh, very few people have come back to church comparatively. And that's not just true here, it's true in many places. But I have wondered and I've had conversations with people wondering about why this is the case. And you know, the truth of the matter is people are afraid. They're afraid. I was talking to someone recently and they were telling me about a mutual friend and they were saying that that person is deathly afraid that they're gonna get the coronavirus and die. So this, this is a fear that's real. But you see, Jesus, as our good shepherd, he gives us life. He gives us life that begins now and goes on eternally. So that even if we were to die of the coronavirus, we would not actually die. We would just transition into God's presence forever. So if that's the hope that you long for, then ask the Lord to be your shepherd. See, this is the amazing thing. God has... This is all offered to humanity by God and it's ours for the asking. It's just simply there if we will ask for it. If we will turn to him and ask for it. Now, when I ask the Lord to be my shepherd, I am admitting that I can't run my own life. That's an admission on my part and that's an admission that we have to we have to make until we are ready to say, okay, I, I can't do this. I need you to be in charge of my life. Then we will remain at the helm and eventually we will end up shipwrecked somewhere. It's inevitable. There's no way to avoid it. It will come sooner or later. But if we admit that we can't run our own lives and we give ourselves over to the good shepherd. He then will give us not only that care that we talked about, but he will give us that gift of life. Now, I want to close today. I want to share um, about Timothy Keller. Uh, some of you who attend regularly, uh, you know that I've quoted Tim Keller on many occasions. He's a pastor and a theologian. He's someone that I greatly uh, admire and respect. He was contracted to write a book that would come out at Easter time, a book about the hope of the resurrection and so forth. Um, quite some time ago, probably, probably at least a year ago, he was contracted to write this book. Um, and he did write the book, and it is now out and available. And the book is called Hope in Times of Fear, The Resurrection and the Meaning of Easter. But here's the twist in the story. During the process of writing this book, Tim was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. So he has written the book. And much of it was written with the knowledge that he himself would soon be face to face with death. There's much uh, that is of note in the book, and I recommend the book. 
but I want to leave us with this summary statement. So this is kind of, you know, the gist of the book. And I was listening to an interview a couple days ago with Tim, and uh, he said this very thing when asked by the interviewer, you know, how are you navigating the fact that death is inevitable? And this is what he said. If Jesus Christ really, truly was raised from the dead, and he was, then eventually everything is going to be all right. You know, that's, <laughs> that's true. But I want you to think of the opposite. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, can you tell me a single thing that gives any hope to anyone for the future of the world? I can't think of anything. You know, history, it just repeats itself over and over again. We never learn from our mistakes as human beings. If you study history, it's just the same cycle over and over and over and over and over. And as we look out today, oh, there's all this hope in technology and there's always been this hope in science since the scientific age and, you know, we're going to get it all figured out and, and we're going to have a utopian world of peace and all of that. And, you know, it always happens. It, it, it all unravels. You look at the, the culture in general and you look at specifically at the cultural elites who are telling us about this peace and prosperity that's going to come, but everybody hates each other. <laughs> Everybody's, you know, angry and canceling each other and all of this stuff. So how does that fit into this beautiful world that's coming? Well, you know, in the minds of some people, it's going to come because we got to get rid of all those hater people. And basically, they're just the people that I disagree with and don't like. So we got to get rid of them first. This is, this is the history of utopia. You get rid of all the bad people, then you've got a perfect world, and then you start hating each other, and then you kill each other off, and then, you know, this is the way it goes over and over again. So my question is, what hope is there? What are you hoping in? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I don't want to burst your bubble, but I'm going to tell you for a fact there is nothing that's going to fix this world. Nothing is going to fix this world. The fix is the resurrection. That is the fix. And you know how God's fixing the world? He's, he's fixing it one person at a time. <laughs> because the problem in the world is you and me and every other human being. Because we're broken. Until we get fixed, nothing else can be fixed. So God is, is fixing the world. And the resurrection of Jesus, here's something that we need to realize. We have to make this connection. The resurrection of Jesus, let me pause, pull back. The Old Testament promised, remember, let me just remind you, that the world was created perfectly. And originally everything was good, it was very good. And mankind that God created lived in harmony with him, and it was all good. But something happened. 
We rebelled through our parents. We rebelled against the, the, the authority of God and brought all of this chaos and brokenness into the world. But God has promised that he's going to bring a new world. So that's the backdrop. God has promised he's going to bring a new world. And listen, that new world began on the first Easter morning. That was the beginning of the new world. Because Jesus conquered death. He rose from the dead as the first one. And the Bible refers to him as the first fruits of those who rise from the dead. He is the pioneer. He is the one who paves the way. He is the one who everyone else will follow into life. And one day, the world itself will be renewed completely. But in the present time, God is renewing it one person at a time. And when we come to Jesus, we are resurrected. We are brought to life spiritually. And we are given the guarantee that that is now our future. That is our destiny. I want to read this final quote from G.K. Chesterton to close today. We read this this morning to open at the um, sunrise service, but it's such a powerful, powerful um, paragraph here. Listen to what it says. On the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder but even they hardly realized that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth and in a semblance of the gardener, God walked again in the garden in the cool, not of the evening, but the dawn. Remember that Jesus is there in the garden with Mary. She recognizes him. Go back in time. And there was a garden. And there were the people, Adam and Eve, that God made. And they walked in the cool of that garden. But it was all ruined. Well, the garden there in Jerusalem where Jesus stood with Mary, that was the dawn of the new day. Just as God walked with them in the garden originally, so he's now in the garden at the beginning of the new creation. So God is recreating the whole universe and he's starting with human beings. And that recreation is what happens when we let the good shepherd be the shepherd over our lives. So Lord, we thank you for the amazing, wonderful reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that through him rising from the dead, Death has been defeated. And Lord, as we think about the future, like Tim Keller said, 
We know that in the end, because Jesus rose from the dead, everything is going to be all right. But Lord, thank you that we don't have to wait till the end to experience that all rightness. Lord, thank you that we can experience it now as we put our faith and trust in Christ, as we yield ourselves to him, as we give the care of our lives over to the good shepherd who laid down his life and took it up again. And Lord, I would just pray for any that are with us today who are still trying to shepherd themselves, still trying to find their way, still thinking that they're going to figure it out one of these days. They're going to get it together. Oh Lord, may they know today that that's impossible. But you will give them the very life that they're longing for that they will flourish under your care. Open hearts to receive that truth. And Lord, for those of us that have received this already, may we just be in awe and wonder and amazement and thanksgiving for what we have. And Lord, may we not take it for granted. May we not neglect it. But Lord, may we go deeper and deeper into the new life that you have given us as we await your presence. These things we pray in the mighty name of our great God and shepherd, Jesus. Amen.